Hi, I'm Jason Bradford. I'm Rob Dietz. And I'm Asher Miller. Welcome to Crazy Town, where we've installed a psilocybin adrenochrome cocktail in our toilets bidet. Uh, That's not the preferred way to take that stuff. Today's topic is dealing with our fear of death and terror management theory. And stay tuned for a fascinating interview with Michael Hebb. Hey, Asher, Jason, I've got a very, very important question for the two of you. And okay. I'm, I'm kind of hoping it's going to lead us nicely into today's main topic, spoiler alert, death. Mm. Okay. So uh, here, Can I leave now? Yeah. Okay. So here's my question. Really important. Get ready. Who is the best character in the X-Men comics and movies? Wolverine. Wow, that was fast. Asher? So you're talking to somebody who doesn't know X Men very well. Let me. Who's the Who's the dude in the uh, wheel wheelchair? Professor Xavier. Professor X. Yeah, Xavier. Okay. I'll go with that. Dude. Yeah, he's got the mind control. No, Magneto or whatever. Magneto, the, Magneto, the evil yeah. guy, the bad guy. Yeah, I like him from the concentration huh. camp. He was from a concentration camp. Yeah, yeah. He's a he was a Jew. Oh, uh, was all it Auschwitz? The there you go. All the better. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's my dude. Yeah. Okay. You got Magneto. You got why Wolverine? Oh God. I mean, I don't know. The fact that... Is it the adamantium claws that I mean, burst cool. forth from his... Uh... But he like takes anything and he wakes back up. Boom! You've hit it! This... Okay, so uh, I agree completely. Wolverine is by far... Sorry, Magneto yeah, sorry. is a good one. Yeah. But Wolverine is the best X-Man and the reason... Well, can we have a quick diversion to Storm? I mean, she controls the weather yeah. and flies. Like, I, I like I like her suit. What an incredible power. <laughs> uh, anyway, back to Wolverine. This guy, uh, he actually tops the lists. Like if you were to go online and say best X-Men, you would see that he ranks the highest. And you're hitting it, Jason. It's that this guy always comes back. He He's, he's essentially immortal. Like you can shoot him in the forehead and he heals back up. So his his X power is this this magical healing. So uh, Wolverine has essentially overcome death and uh, is like a hero in the quest for immortality. Mm. And this quest for immortality is actually kind of what we want to talk about with the hidden drivers that are bringing us into crazy town. So if you recall, we're trying to look at surprising things that uh, drive us to overconsumption and and all the problems we're facing socially and environmentally. And so today, we're going to hit this quest for immortality. There's actually an academic theory, Hmm. a well-researched one, that's all about this called, guess what? Ready for it? Terror management theory. Mm. Mm. God, I wish I could walk to a cocktail party and say, well, what do you do? And I say... Well, I uh, I study terror management theory. Yeah, you're a terror management theorist. I'm a terror <laughs> management consultant. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I will help you manage your terror. So I don't think this is the most well-known theory in the world. So uh, maybe we can take a, just a quick tour of, of what we're talking about here. Way back in 1973, there was an anthropologist. Way back, by yeah, the way. That's, that's <laughs> that the makes me feel old. Dark ages yeah. right there. Uh There's an anthropologist named Ernest Becker, and he wrote a Pulitzer Prize-winning book called The Denial of Death, and it's this big multidisciplinary philosophy kind of book where where he basically claims that culture is an elaborate defense mechanism against the awareness that we're going to die one day. 
<laughs> That's yeah. a pretty bold statement. Yeah. Yeah. I like that too. An elaborate defense mechanism. <laughs> like, yeah. We just made this up because we're scared of dying. Yeah. Yeah. So fast forward a few decades and these social psychologists kind of rediscovered uh, Ernest Becker's book and they, they really started digging in on this. These three guys named Jeff Greenberg, Sheldon Solomon, and Tom Pazensky, and they wrote their own book called The Worm at the Core on the Role of Death in Life. So and you got kind of this theoretician guy, and then you've got the experimentalist. Yeah, yeah. It's like physics. It's how that's organized, too. Yeah. It's cool. And so, you know, at the risk of boiling all of human behavior down to one issue, uh, terror management theory suggests that fear of death compels us to do all sorts of stuff. It could be from creating sublime works of art to entering into wars, uh, buying and consuming status signaling stuff, acting violently towards people who are different from us. In a nutshell, people do a lot of the things they do to avoid or at least temper their fear of death. And Mm. I think the key thing here is we're talking about, you're basically talking about things that are much broader than what people tend to typically think of as kind of a religious belief in reaction to to the fear of death. I think a lot of people understand that that some of religious belief comes from us wanting to overcome death and our fear of death. But you're talking about it being much broader than just our religious and spiritual beliefs. Yeah, I think this kind of almost goes back to what makes humans extra special as an animal. But, but it's not just that, though, okay? Because when I think of this... The first thing I think about is like just basic instincts for self-preservation, right? So, you know, you know stories of the tsunami in Indonesia. Yeah, where yeah, the Christmas like, tsunami. Yeah, okay. I don't even remember what it was called that. But people, you know, people like were found on the tops of trees, just like hugging them sure, for their right. life. And so there's an instinct that when you are facing death, like literally facing death, you will... You will do something to to ward that off. Yeah, do what it takes to survive. Do what it takes to survive. Okay, but so all animals do this, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you see it when a gazelle runs away from a lion. In fact, <laughs> in, in looking at the preservation instinct of animals, one time uh, I was actually in front of my house and uh, I was with my friend Jeremy, who's kind of a, a biologist type. And we noticed the dirt and the gravel moving near the house. I was like, Oh, that's weird. And went over to it and started scratching it away. And a mole pops up. You guys ever seen a mole? Like, <laughs> they're funny looking. They're the most awesome. Cre- I, I hadn't seen one up close. But so Jeremy like pounces on this, just drops his hand down, picks it up. So he's got a mole in his hand and he turns it over to so we could see its face. So we were getting a close up of this mole, which, you know, it's blind, blind and, yeah. and, and, you know, funny nose. Yeah, it's and funny paws. I, I, I've got to get away from the mic to imitate what this, this mole did. As he's turning it over in his hand, you just hear this <laughs> like this, this horrible, <laughs> like a uh, blood curdling scream from a mole. <laughs> <laughs> Was that to like, is that like a survival mechanism just to... I, I think it was just like sort of out? shit in its pants, you know, like, like, and yeah, it was like the loudest, most heinous sound it could make. And we, like, we felt bad. It actually worked for like, oh, we've got to put this guy back. Jeez. Yeah. You know? But uh, it, it was real. you know, it, it just shows that a, an animal 
knows about death and is is worried about it. But there's a difference. There's the immediate response reaction to to danger, right? And to the to the risk of death in a in a situation. I think what's different about humans is that we are able to actually consider death not just in a moment where we're faced with it, right? We we reflect on it. It's a kind of this ever-present thing in our experience. And that makes us unique. I mean, in a sense, we're, we're incapacitated by our ability to grasp that it is something that we are all inevitably going to have to face. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. think that's right. That's like our, uh, almost going back to X-Men, that's like the X power of all humans, right? That mm-hmm. we understand we're going to die one day, although maybe it's not a power, maybe it's a, a disability or something, but... Yeah, well, I think, you know, there's sort of like, I think there's two levels, right? There is this, if you're faced with with eminent danger and and have to think about death, maybe you you do avoidance strategies that are very clear, right? You do what it takes not to think about it, eat eat bonbons and watch Hallmark movies, or I don't know, whatever. (laughs) But if it's sort of in this always ever-present unconscious state where you're you know about it then i think what people do is they they try to like again back to the culture thing they try to create meaning that's beyond themselves that that's what that's the idea that if if i'm not going to live forever my culture will like my people in a sense you know so they are really working hard then to become part of that culture part of that tribe so to speak so so it's like they're back in the tsunami and they're climbing up the tree and then clinging to it. But this time, instead of the tree, they're actually clinging to something else, their culture or yeah. their religious beliefs. Or Yes. And or, maybe then, I guess in terror management, it's like they're going to cling harder the more fearful they are. It's almost like if you're afraid of death, you might become a, a super evangelist or you know super hardcore member of your culture. But that... Yeah. There's a downside to that, right? Which, um, you know, oftentimes cultures are at odds with one another. Yeah. And, and when people cling hard to a culture or a religion or some kind of belief system or a moral code, you know, it oftentimes leads them to judge those of others, right? So those become, con- you know, considered to be threats. The outgroup, yeah. Yeah, and so— you you might be attacking them. You might be trying to conquer them and assimilate them, or you know, convert them to your to your belief. Yeah. Can I interest you guys in hearing a quote from one of those psychologists that we mentioned, Sheldon Solomon? I love this guy. He should be one of us in Crazy Town. The the way he comes up with stuff. He I, yeah. he he explained. I think what you're talking about, share a share in a movie. He said, "My God is better than your God, and we will kick your ass to prove it." <laughs> 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 oh god i saw this cartoon where it was like these two armies facing off right and it's yep. like it was about to be and it was, it was swords it was like hand-to-hand combat kind of thing and it's like <clears throat> we will not give up until they accept our rabbit god and reject <laughs> their i don't know you know screaming mole god or whatever right, right. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm never going to reject the screaming mole god. I'm worshipping that guy till the day I uh, overcome death with my quest for immortality. <laughs> right. right. Um, 
Just uh, so you know, this guy, I, I think of this guy, Sheldon Solomon, as a bit of a rock star because he, he also, <laughs> I'll get, hit you guys with one more quote. He said, the explicit awareness that you're a breathing piece of defecating meat destined to die and ultimately no more significant than a lizard or a potato is not especially uplifting. <laughs> <laughs> which yeah, is yeah. which is why we invent all these uh, psychological ways to uh, maybe not confront a thought as as rough as that. Yeah, that's something you have to work through as a human. I agree. I, I, Although I like potatoes. Yeah. Do you like <laughs> breathing fun. pieces of defecating meat? <laughs> hey, man! If you, if you are, if that's what you are, you, you got to embrace it sometimes. Oh God! <laughs> Just roll with it, huh? So, uh, yeah, that's a. I think that's a pretty good run through of what terror management theory is. It's that we'll cling to things, uh, to ideas and beliefs as a result of, of our fear or anxiety of death. But is there any, is there any proof of this theory? There is, uh, and which is uh, why, like, I think the way you put it earlier, Jason, was good. You had the kind of uh, philosophizing with Ernest Becker and others. You know, this can go way back to, to other philosophers oh, yeah, all Stoics. throughout history. Yeah, the Stoics. But... These three guys started off on sort of these experiments and research, and uh, a lot of other people have done research as well to where you've now got well over 300 experiments. That, all, all done that, on poor college students. Right. So this is my favorite thing. I love, I love psychology experiments because they always like fool these sad college students into participating in something where they're basically the dupes. Well, they, prob- they probably got paid, right? Yeah, so yeah. And they're starving. They're, they're willing to do whatever they, they have yeah. to. Right? Yeah. Did you guys, I did bucks. some of those in college. I was a dupe in some, some psych right. and decision theory kinds of experiments. Nice. Yeah. I never got to do that. I wish I You had. were the anomaly. They they tossed you out of the data set. Yeah. No, I was the one uh, that just took electric shocks for everybody else. You know, that's, <laughs> that's where I am. So yeah, basically those three guys, uh, Greenberg, Solomon, and, and Przinsky, did these experiments. And uh, we should share these. Yeah, I think I remember reading about one of these, right? They did this experiment where they they took a group of students, and they're, I think they're all Christian students, and they asked them to complete a questionnaire. Half of them, I don't, I don't even know what the subject matter was, but it was sort of the standard questionnaire. The other half, they they actually worked in a bunch of language around death. And I think it was like pretty hardcore. To, I mean, ma- to make them contemplate yeah, their really, own death, right? Exactly. Yeah. And then they presented them with these kind of two, you know, two fictitious characters, right? And they had to give their impressions of, of them. Now, these two characters had the same uh, personality traits, the only thing that was different about them was their re- religious affiliation. One of them was Christian, the other one was Jewish, right? And these are the survey takers were Christian. Right. So the ones that weren't prompted to think about death kind of rated them, you know, equally, mm-hmm. the Jewish and the Christian one. The ones that had to contemplate death really went pretty negative on the Jewish student, <laughs> <laughs> which as a Jew myself makes me pretty nervous, you know? Yeah. Oh, um, God. Yeah, that's that's kind of fascinating. That's like, not why part of Jesus's that? teaching. <laughs> well, don't, and he was a Jew. Don't remind people of death. Okay, never. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean that's really interesting because that's saying if when you when death uh, kind of gets into your mind, you're going to treat out groups not as well, right? But what I think's great is they're sort of a next level experiment because it's testing this idea that you were talking about, Jason, with clinging to culture. So they wanted to see, 
hey, if we run an experiment where we remind people of death, will will they cling more tightly to their culture? So this this one is really ingenious, I got to say. <laughs> so same deal, students, we're going to dupe them, half the students. Uh, well, okay, so they're told, hey, uh, you're going to take a, a test that looks at your personality and, and how it affects your creativity and problem-solving abilities. And it's going to be a two, two-part deal. First, we're going to ask you to do this questionnaire, and then you got to try to do these creative tasks, okay? So half the students get the questionnaire that's the normal one. Half of them get the one that makes them think about death, okay? Same, same setup. Now, after you're done with the questionnaire... You go over to this table and you're told, okay, you got to do this thing. You got to take this glass vial that's got a, a black liquid dye in it and there's sand that's been mixed in there. And your job is to separate the sand out of this black liquid, okay? And you can only use the tools here that I've given you. Okay, so the, uh, the, <laughs> the, the great thing about the experiment is the only filter there that can do the job is, in a, is, a, is a small American flag. <laughs> so, oh, no. <laughs> so you have to pour this thing, this liquid with sand in it, through the flag into no. another vial. And if you do that, you'll separate the sand. So the students who got the, the regular questionnaire... They did this pretty quickly. The students who got the death questions were doing all they could to avoid using the flag, and it took them more than twice as long to wow. separate the sand. This is why this unconscious mind that you you just have no clue how you can be messed with. <laughs> right, right. Well, they, they probably had no idea that they were doing that for no, that reason. That they're like, oh, they're avoiding all. desecration, avoiding desecration, whatever. It's some, like, something going on in the back of their mind. They don't right. know any... That's freaking awesome. Awesome and troubling. Yes. This says something about psychologists and their experiments, too. They had a second part of this creativity task where they said, hey, here's a crucifix, and you got to hang it on the wall using only these tools. And the only way you could bang the nail in the wall was with the crucifix itself. <laughs> awesome. So same deal, like yeah, uh, same I'm, result. I'm assuming it was only Christian students yeah. as well, right? Oh. The Jews would have probably been okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. So yeah, same result took more than twice as long to, wow. to actually get there. So yeah, so you've got now, uh, we're going to treat other cultures differently. Yeah. Uh, we're going to cling to yeah. our symbols of our culture. Well, yeah, yeah, that worries me. Like, I remember the horrific, I remember in the 90s, like early 90s, remember the Rwanda massacre, yeah. the genocide, sure. right? Yeah. And you had this, you had this just like, how do these people decide they're going to somehow commit these atrocious acts of violence against other people that are just around them and that they're used to being around. So these psychologists are all teasing out like how bad can it get to that point of actually now harming the outgroup. Mm. So how do you do this with college students? Oh, you're allowed, <laughs> you're allowed to abuse college students, right? <laughs> <laughs> is, that, is that okay? So they did the experiment with hot sauce. <laughs> oh, instead of violence. Okay. Yes. Okay. Well, so good. again, the same thing, you know, remind people of death or remind people or don't remind people of death and then see how willing they are to put hot sauce in front of somebody who is on an out group. Who, who, mm. Who's kind of like, they, they're forced, they have to, they have to, they have drink, to drink whatever's it. in front of them. Yes, okay. <laughs> and so those who were reminded of death gave twice as much hot sauce to their <laughs> out group people that they had to force to suffer than when they were not reminded of death. Wow. wow. So, so now we've got, uh, you get reminded of death and you're willing to inflict more harm on Yeah, on, on an out group, yeah. 
Ah, oh, jeez. So that is it's fascinating and also deeply disturbing. It is very disturbing. I to mean, because all you're talking about is just introducing the 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 concept of death or the reality of death in a in a pretty minimal way on a friggin' questionnaire. Right. Right. right? It's not even not even real right. like threat. It's just just talking about the threat. Yeah, and you wonder how how much this is affecting us given how many reminders of death are around us all the time. I just read the news or watch a movie or you But know. if you think about how, how this is manifesting now and kind of the in the modern world, right? Like we've actually put death kind of behind behind a closed door yeah, in a lot curtain, of ways. Yeah. I mean it's yes. you think about human experience right now, at least in our in our situation. And we're talking about kind of like America. You know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, people of our generation. Where we don't pour black dye on the flag, damn it. You know, we're <laughs> we're probably more kind of divorced from the reality of death than you know, than maybe any culture or period in history, yeah. if you think about it. I mean, people are living have been living longer. And we've created a whole system where we take people who are at the end of life, where it used to be that, you know, we lived in multi-generational families. And first of all, you know, you think about childhood mortality rates where it used to be much higher. And then people lived uh, shorter lives. People lived together. So they're experiencing death kind of all the time. This is outside of situations where we used to have infectious diseases that killed oh, yeah. huge swaths the of the population. Now we we stick people in old folks' homes, nursing homes, yeah. you know, out of sight, out of mind, in a sense. And everything there's when, a whole industry built around keeping death sort of away and very sterile. Yeah, right? yeah, totally. Yeah, I, I mean, you even put them in a big, oftentimes metal box, pumped full of formaldehyde, and then stuck in a hole in the ground. We're not going to let this person decay, even. We're just going to hide them away that much, right? Yeah, that's that's crazy. I I do think it's interesting to with this idea of terror management theory and the idea of 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 death being in your mind to just think about different behaviors you see out there that yeah could be at least related, if not uh, directly caused by it. So I often think about how much we try to distract ourselves from having to think about anything. Uh, heavy like that, like binge watching, for example, is 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 one of these distraction techniques that people use all the time. And I have to uh, tell you guys about something I binge watched recently. Uh, and I'm not talking like a whole season of a show or whatever. I found one of those rabbit holes on YouTube. Uh, it was. Oh, did you just turn into a QAnon person? I I did not. Thank thankfully, but it sure. it there's a whole bunch of videos of GoPro cameras filming near-death experiences. Oh, my <laughs> God. So these people don't die, but like like there's one with this guy's on a snowmobile and there's a grizzly bear and the bear turns on him and the paw goes like right over his head and oh, just Jesus. barely misses slapping him off this snowmobile, uh, which he deserved for chasing a grizzly bear in the first place. But <laughs> I, was, I was actually wondering, am I contemplating death in a good way or am I binge watching to uh, yeah, you're just <laughs> to on the edge death. I think most people are distracting with any other thing that they could possibly distract yeah. themselves alcohol with. shopping working out there's all kinds of uh, well they're healthy ones and unhealthy ones I got to tell you on the distraction front you know we all have coping mechanisms for things so I, I have to confess one of my own okay which is you know I don't know what your guys' experience is but death will come in my head 
on occasion. Mm-hmm. It, it usually comes for me when, like, for example, my, my son rides off on his bike to go yes. to the intramural fields, you know, a few miles away. He's on his bike and he's going to come home later when it's, you know, close to dark. And I get this thought in my head where I kind of imagine something happening to yes. him. And I immediately need to distract myself from that thought. I, ca- I can't handle it. In fact, I'm mm-hmm. feeling it right now. Right. And and you won't believe the thing that I do, okay? I do this <laughs> bizarre thing. I can't I, wait to hear this. As, as It's an amazing confession here. As a Jew who is agnostic, who looks at superstition as kind of a silly thing, I knock on wood. That's like my immediate thing. Oh, that's fantastic. And, you know, knocking on wood, I I believe, comes from knocking on the cross, right? So for a Jew to do that is a little odd. But it's just, (laughs) it's like a way of relieving that tension tension for me. I just distract myself with it. That same son of mine, starting when he was around 10 years old, there would be times where, I swear it was multiple times a week, he'd be in the kitchen walking by me or something. He goes, ah, like that. And I would say, what's going on? He's like, I just thought about death. Really? He was going through this phase where he was where it would come to his mind and he didn't know what to do with it. Right. And he would just go, ah! You know, just wow. have this like visceral, you know, physical reaction to it because he was just like struggling it to figure out. It sound like a mold that's been picked <laughs> up. <Yeah. laughs> well, think about what's going on with this pandemic. My gosh, that situation has forced people to confront it. A lot of people are dying in hospitals alone. It's horrible. But you're at least people are thinking about death, even if they don't know someone directly, because you see the statistics. And of course, what has happened? Like you mentioned alcohol consumption. Well, that's spiked, right? Yeah. People are finding ways to distract themselves from that existential angst that's going on right now. And that can be unhealthy. So in the meantime, a lot of the things that people used were able to use to cope may have been taken away. You have to stay inside. You can't go hang out with and socialize with people. You can't, you don't go to religious services. And so, or you may have lost your job and and vocations provide meeting. Like I'm being a service. I'm part of a community and I'm contributing to my society through my job. And maybe you've lost that. So I think this is, this is an interesting time in that, my gosh, you know, given, given what we've talked about, it seems like some of the outgrouping, that stuff should be worse right now. Like the polarization that we see in uh, politics in the U.S. Yeah, right now. I, I, I definitely think we see it politically. You could look at things like racism and, and other forms of kind of in-group, out-group dynamics. I, I, I don't know that those are worse right now. I think that there's been maybe a combination of a feeling that politically there was permission to express some of these things that were latent for people, you know, yeah. but there's so um, many contributing factors, but yeah. right. But I'm not, and I'm not sure that that's like suddenly worse than it was, but I do think the political polarization, and again, I'm talking from my experience, so I may not be seeing that what others are experiencing, but, but certainly you could see the political polarization as being even more extreme. And, and, and I think a lot of people would say, oh, well, that's just because, for example, Trump was this polarizing figure, right? right. So, but, but maybe there is this sort of combining force of, right. of the pandemic and the, and the, you know, the, the realization of death that's exacerbated. That I think, I think that's what I'm getting at is that that makes sense. Like it's worse than it would have been, even if there was just Trumpism and all the polarization of that, this is compounding it. Yeah. I mean, that's the hard thing, right? You, you, you can't boil this down to say, oh, fear of death causes all the negative behavior that we see in the world, but it 
could easily be a contributing factor or a compounding factor or, you know, combined up with some of the other things going on. I think about that with something as as big as climate change. Hmm. Let's say your culture is, you know, what it is in America now, sort of the materialist, capitalist, individual freedom, do whatever you want kind of uh, idea of our culture. Well, somebody comes along with climate change. You remember Naomi Klein's book was called This Changes Everything, which Mm -hmm. was basically the premise was climate change is going to make us rethink our politics, our economic system, our our culture. Well, so climate change is, is, is an attack, basically. So that's the other. And so that maybe terror management theory has something to say about why there's so many vehement climate change deniers. Yeah. And, That's interesting. Yeah, and then you you can think the same thing about technology and and progress too, right? Uh, I believe in technology and progress, and this stuff about climate or biodiversity loss is is problematic to my worldview and my culture. So I'm going to cling to that tsunami tree all the tighter. So oh yeah, yeah, space exploration. You know, we're gonna we you know we may screw up Earth. But we're off to another planet. Like at least our culture, our spacefaring, high tech culture will 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 shoot out to the stars and colonize the universe. Yeah, I mean, w- one thing that's really concerning about that. So if that if that's true, if people are going to cling uh, more desperately to cultural beliefs, religious beliefs, whatever beliefs they are, in the face of these types of crises. In a sense, when we should be responding to climate crises with a recognition that we have to do something differently, people may actually be more incentivized to stick with, yeah. double down, yeah. and hold on. So how do we break through that, I think, is a really interesting... Cryogenic storage is the main way. <laughs> right, that's the only way. <laughs> you know, we, we freeze ourselves until all of this blows over, and but, then, then we'll wake back up with our Wolverine immortality. <laughs> but I do think I, I do think it's worth, worth looking at people who do have integrated a recognition of the climate crisis, how they're managing, in a sense, that the terror associated with that by, in a sense, doubling down on different kinds of beliefs. It may not be a belief that everything is going to be fine. It may not be a religious belief. You know, God has a plan, but it may be that technology is going to solve this problem. Well, I I think the three of us have talked about this issue with ourselves, being head of the uh, Hypocrites Club of America or whatever, you know, where I, I can on one hand, know something about the existential threats we face from climate change and other environmental issues, and at the same time still behave in ways that are contributing to the problem, right? And the only way I could do that is denying the problem at the time I'm, I'm uh, whatever it is, riding on a cruise ship or something. Yeah, I think what's really interesting for me to think about this as a hidden driver, uh, this idea of terror management, is that Normally, I would have thought, okay, well, people are scared of death. That makes a lot of sense. I could see why people would cling to a religious or spiritual belief that provides them kind of solace in in believing that there's an afterlife. But what we're talking about here, really, is that it is deeply embedded in so much of our behavior. It's not just what belief we have about what comes after life or after death. It's about all of these other ways that we behave in the world, and we don't even recognize that we're doing it, just like those college students, you know, um, in those experiments. And so maybe, you know, one of the takeaways here is to to sort of 
recognize how this might be impacting us, leading us to kind of double down either in-group, out-group dynamics, whatever those are. You you pick your in-group, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And pick your out-group. Like this is contributes to that dynamic or, you know, other forms of kind of denialism or distraction. And then we might have to actually just really reckon with this as being an ever-present part of the reality. That no, I don't think so, Cher. I do not want to wrestle with this, reckon with it. In fact, my in-group is going to be the X-Men. I want to get adamantium claws and then be cryogenically stored until uh, all this worry about death is over. Stay tuned for our George Costanza Memorial Do the Opposite segment, where we discuss things we can do to get the hell out of crazy town. You don't have to just listen to the three of us blather on anymore. We've actually invited someone intelligent on the program to provide inspiration. We'd like to invite our listeners to attend the Crazy Town Hall. That's our exclusive webinar for financial backers of the show. Oh, when's that going to happen? Well, of course, it could only happen on April Fool's Day. What? Just... Wait, for real? We're doing it on April 1st? Oh, yeah, April 1st. We want to celebrate the three head fools in Crazy Town. Excellent. Uh, this, this is a webinar that is meant for people who make a monthly donation to the program. Any amount, whatever fits your budget. Make that donation and we will invite you to attend the webinar where you can insult Jason, you can make fun of me, you can... Uh, Give me lots of compliments. Yeah, yes. compliment to share. Last year when we did this, we were able to raise enough money to hire Melody Travers to be our producer. Maybe uh, this year, if you guys give us enough money, you could replace us altogether. <laughs> yeah, we'll outsource the whole program. It, that would be great. It actually, having Melody on has freed us up to be able to bring on some people who are smarter than us to, to give some real ideas with the interviews we've been doing and, and really just improve the show. So if you want to support the show, go to postcarbon.org slash crazy town and hit donate. That's postcarbon.org slash crazy town. Your turn to repeat, Jason. What are you guys talking about? Every decision I've ever made in my entire life has been wrong. My life is the complete opposite of everything I want it to be. If every instinct you have is wrong, then the opposite would have to be right. So there's a little bit of a paradox here because we've been talking about how awareness of death can make you do some stuff maybe you wouldn't want to do. But what we're proposing here in the do the opposite is to contemplate death head on really wrestle with it. I think of like grab a scythe and have a scythe fight with uh, with death, you know, the guy in the black yeah, robe sure. carrying his scythe, but to, to really tackle it head on and get a better, different relationship with the idea of death. And that could help tamp down some of that anxiety. Yeah. So you don't mean like actually wrestling with death, <laughs> but like putting yourself in a near-death experience, right? We're not talking about taking it that far. We're yeah. No, uh, no chasing grizzly bears on snowmobiles. But, Got it. Uh, yeah. But no, actually considering the idea of death, taking time to, to not hide it away, not shy away from it, but uh, really think about uh, how do you, how do you want to die? You know how how might you feel uh, towards the end of your life? You know, there's um there are actually some some things out there that are great resources for doing this. My wife and I actually did one of these. Uh, it was called Death Over Dinner, hmm. 
And this guy started this. I got the Christie. Is this? Is yeah. it? Or I was thinking like the purple Kool Aid guy. Like you, oh, you drink this, and everyone's dead over dinner. Oh, no, I, I wouldn't be here. Um, <laughs> no, it was. It's a really cool thing. This guy just started, um, which is basically a website with with some resources of things that people could read or listen to or watch, and kind of some uh, recommendation for. This is how you organize a dinner. You invite people over. Uh, everyone kind of agrees to listen or read a, a something a, about death, you know, and then you have a conversation. In in our case, we we invited some friends over, and it was a chance for a lot of us to talk about not only death and mortality, and there was a there was a kind of healthy debate going on there, but also just how we've dealt with it with our families and thinking about our parents who are getting older and what we might do there. I found it very, very useful. That actually reminds me of probably one of the most powerful uh, experiences I've had on an emotional level. And one of the most helpful things I ever did was uh, I was helping take care of my uncle Jack. He had gotten esophageal cancer and he was in this middle space trying to figure out, should, do I go through this treatment or is this the end of my life? And uh, I think a lot of people are hesitant to talk with somebody who's in a spot like that. And I just decided I would do this. And like I said, I think it's one of the one of the best things I did was to tackle the idea of his death head on. Not Not that I was telling him what to do or giving him advice, but just helping him come to terms and make that decision. Mm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he ended up deciding, I don't want to do the treatment. I'm ready to die. And, yeah. and we ended up putting him on, on hospice care, and he, he died at home with family around him. This is really weird. I, you know, we're friends, Rob. I didn't know this story. I didn't know that he died of esophageal cancer. Mm-hmm. I had somebody in my life that I was really close to. She was like my surrogate grandmother, mm-hmm. who also died of the same form of cancer. And when I was a young teenager, she's she's Dutch, and she was actually a Holocaust survivor who lost many, many people in her family. And when she got cancer, she lost her husband to cancer as well. She didn't she didn't want to go out in a mm. in a protracted, agonizing kind of way. Right. And when her quality of life uh, deteriorated to such a degree, she decided that she was going to end her life on her terms. And in Holland, you could actually you know, be euthanized. It was legal to do so. And she, you know, she made a whole, basically a production out of her her own death. She wow. wore a favorite dress. She ate her favorite meal. She actually had a friend compose music for her. Yeah. And she lay down, took a little pill, and basically went to sleep forever. And mm-hmm. I really struggled with it because she actually, you know, my mom was telling me, honey is going to die at this point. You should say goodbye to her. And I was maybe 13 or 14 at the time. And I just couldn't wrap my head around this. Yeah. I was mad at her. Right. You know, and I, it, it took me a very long time in my life to recognize like how in a sense empowering that was, especially with her life experience to do that. Well, I mean, that's hard for a kid to yeah. to yeah. grapple with that. And maybe we're not asking a 13 year old necessarily to do it, but, but maybe we are. You know, maybe that was a, formative experience that years later you can look back on and say, wow, that was, uh, that was something to, to emulate and to strive for rather than, you know, avoid or put her on the worst machines and have yeah. that protracted suffering death. I remember talking to my grandmother last time I saw her and 
she was asking me stuff like, you know, do you believe in the afterlife and all that? And what happens to us? And I was kind of saying, well, I really don't, you know, but, you know, are you afraid? And just having these honest conversations and just sort of talking about her life. And I think, you know, what was interesting is what, what I think helps people is, is just having those connections, knowing that people are thinking about them and they, you know, people really care about them and just reflecting on what, you know, reflect, reflecting on their life. And, you know, it's sort of just, if you're resisting death constantly, as opposed to sort of saying, well, it, there's a cycle to things. We we rise up above the soil and we go back to it. Yeah. And it it, it 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 allows you kind of to let go a bit and see things more with gratitude than fear. And so I think a lot of people, you know, either react one way, like they get more fearful and they hold on and they are resistant, and others just kind of go into this point of acceptance. Yeah, right? kind of funny, you, you talking about that is similar to how... Michael Pollan in his his book on uh, I can't remember the title of his book How to Change um, Your Mind Yeah yeah How to Change Your Mind Yeah yes. I read it and uh, he talks about how the active ingredient in uh, psychedelic mushroom psilocybin can help with that anxiety in uh, in terminal patients too but yeah seeing the connections you have with everything really and realizing that it's okay you know life life begins life ends and I'm part of something bigger than myself so I think this is like what do you do we're talking about the terror management theory and saying people are trying to create meaning beyond themselves, but often it's in this non-productive ways. Right. So part of remember the still assignment book he said is that people got connected to nature. You know, oh, mushrooms are amazing, and <laughs> I want to be part of the mushroom cycle. So if you can find meaning now that is about not harming out groups. <laughs> <laughs> Like maybe right. maybe there's some uh, other anxiety buffering things you could do rather yeah. than uh, than going to war. It's, well, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's it's interesting, interesting because that means you're not saying I'm going to somehow conquer my my terror, my fear of death, or conquer my tendency, the human tendency to want to cling on to cultural beliefs or whatever it is because of it. It's sort of embracing that, but making sure that whatever those beliefs are, yeah. are pro-social, yeah. you know, at, at not least Pro-environmental. At yeah. least do no harm. Right. Like, uh, I always uh, say, uh, at end of life, I'm going to take up squirrel suit flying and go over to Yosemite and jump off without a parachute. You know, <laughs> yeah. get that one last flight in. Yeah. No, <laughs> at, least, uh, at least I'm not uh, uh, trying to cling on to my tsunami tree and, yeah. and uh, kill some other culture. So what we're saying to our listeners here... <laughs> Here is um, no, it's not enough that you depress the living hell out of your friends and relatives <laughs> talking about the existential threat of climate change and you know depletion of resources and the end of economic growth. You need to also talk to them about death. Yes, yeah. and then when you're about to go out, go out big. Yeah, yes. yeah. Boom <laughs> goes the dynamite. <laughs> Michael Hebb is the author of the book, Let's Talk About Death Over Dinner, An Invitation and Guide to Life's Most Important Conversation. And he's the founder of deathoverdinner.org and eol.community, which is an end-of-life resource, the largest on the planet, that helps people deal with, with death and, and, and the end of life. And if you read Michael's bio, you quickly see that he's a creative problem solver and, and organizer. I was really excited to learn that that he's a co-founder of City Repair, which is a, a project I always loved uh, that helps 
residents transform their neighborhoods in, in really artful ways that, that build community. So, Michael, welcome to Crazy Town. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to talk with you. Uh, Jason, Asher, and I have been discussing terror management theory, and we've been sharing some research about the fear of death and how it can negatively affect people's behavior, sometimes in, in really profound ways. And one of our big takeaways on how to deal with that issue is that if you want to stop these kind of negative behaviors, then you've got to stop avoiding the topic of death and you've got to wrestle with it head on. So, you know, you get to this place where you can realize you're going to die one day without being so anxious about it. And your work seems really fitting uh, along those lines. Could, could you describe how you came to write your book and start up these organizations, Death Over Dinner and EOL.community? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a long story, so I'll keep it very, very short. It started with gathering people around the dinner table. First, actually, it started with gathering people in tea huts via city repair and realizing that there is such a deep yearning to be together in a meaningful way, um, not in a way that is set up via transactions or consumerism, but a way that is about deep personal connection. And that grew into um, a series of global conversations that I hosted with world leaders talking about, can we and genocide in our lifetime? Why do we go to war? Why are there homeless? What is the gender gap and what can we do about it? And I, through hosting these conversations with presidents, with Nobel Prize winners, with Grammy Award winning musicians, with people that were actively homeless, people that were dying, you name it, I became very clear to me that the most difficult conversations, quote unquote difficult conversations, the conversations that we avoid, the conversations that we think are hard, um, that require vulnerability are the ones that have the most potential to transform our life and connect us to other humans and really give us our why, the reason why we're here. And so ultimately, I realized that I needed to democratize these conversations, not just have them with leaders. And I built Death Over Dinner as a pilot at the University of Washington. And there have been over a million people who've sat down and had death dinners ever since. So that's the very short version of how these organizations came together. Well, I, I just want to say thanks for taking on that work. And uh, it, it sounds fascinating. Uh, also, the idea that so many people have done it uh, is, is really exciting. Now, you you called it death over dinner, uh, not not death over tiddlywinks or, or death over walking the dog. Uh, could you Could you explain why you selected the dinner table as it's kind of the place for such a conversation. Yeah, well, you were talking about people avoiding the conversation, um, people uh, and, and terror management theory and the, the negative impacts of us not talking about death. Um, and the reality is you need to create a carrot, not just this notion of a stick, like you should have this conversation. You're going to be negatively impacted if you don't. You have to give people something beautiful, something they want, or they're not going to change. Um, so it's just core understanding of behavioral change comes from some sort of reward system, right? And people love dinner parties and they love the idea of coming together and meaningfully connect. And they also like when somebody has done a lot of the thinking, like a board game, right? It, it would be very hard to say, hey guys, I've invented a board game. I want you to try it. 
you're not going to get a lot of people excited about it. Somebody else has invented a board game. It's called Monopoly. It's really fun, or it's called, you name it. Um, it's really fun. Let's get together. It was actually written up in the New York Times. It's a cool thing. That's what we wanted to create around this conversation around death, an experience that you actually wanted to have, um, not one that you were told that you needed to have, should have, etc., but one that you were attracted to. And beauty, food, wine, candles, remembering the people that have impacted our lives. These are these are things that we're deeply attracted to. And then in, in the end, people end up talking about topics they've avoided and having really meaningful breakthroughs. Yeah, yeah, that's incredible. I do know that Cher, one of one of our hosts here in Crazy Town, has participated in a in a death over dinner and and I am thinking about doing so as well because I I just uh, all the things you're talking about, I certainly long to have those kind of connections and, and conversations with, with people I care about. I want to know if, if you have a good example of a person or, or some people who, who have dived into this sort of conversation and it profoundly affected them. Do you, do you have an example of saying, maybe it's even you, I don't know, but somebody who's gone through a death over dinner and really changed their outlook, maybe reduced their anxiety or, or just had a, a moment of transformation from doing it? Yeah, well, I mean, too many to, to detail, but the one that comes to mind is a dinner that I hosted, uh, one of many dinners, but a particular dinner that I hosted with the Cleveland Clinic and specifically with their cardiothoracic department, which is their heart surgery department. And this is at a clinic, probably one of the most famous healthcare organizations in the world. But this is also where heart surgery, transplant surgery was first performed. And I had the whole cardiothoracic department, nurses, doctors, anesthesiologists, all gathered for a dinner they were dreading. They did not want to be there, but they were. many people were there because they wanted to report back to the Board of Governors that was a bad idea. And I was scared. Um, and I told this group of pretty intimidating doctors, I was like, tonight I want you to think about medicine differently. You think about medicine as something that staves off death, something that keeps us alive. And I want you to actually take on this notion that death itself can be medicine, that death is medicine. And, you know, you could feel the air go out of the room and then a, this amazing thing happening happened, which was a total softening. The, the walls came down and doctors talked about why they were doctors. Suicides in their um, you know, family, losing somebody and now wanting to save everyone. And the care teams, seeing the humanity of these very esteemed uh, physicians and being able to share on that level, I knew and I watched that the, the, the care teams will interact differently with patients. They will interact differently with each other after that type of experience. So to see it at an institutional level, both at the Cleveland Clinic and Memorial Sloan Kettering and these remarkable organizations that we work with has been the most impactful work I've seen. Yeah, I was just kind of in awe. I really liked the notion of let's think about medicine differently. Uh, those kinds of uh, ways of guiding people through a conversation where, you know, you're, you're kind of forcing uh, a perspective change. That's, uh, uh, that's well, uh, hats off. That's a really smart way to, to get them to enter the conversation and, and, uh, and, and 
yeah, to get to that, that level of connection. Well, it's a bit of a stage dive. Um, so that, <laughs> yeah. you know, there's been a few moments where I've known that I've jumped off the stage and I have no idea if anyone is going to catch me. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, sometimes you hit the floor, you just got to pick yourself up, right? Well, certainly uh, that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, among the the people you meet, or, or even the people who are listening to us right now, I'm sure there have got to be some who have avoided thinking about death, and, and maybe who haven't planned for it, you know, either for themselves or for a loved one. Now, now obviously, you and I would recommend to them that they participate in a death over dinner conversation, maybe host one, but to draw people in who, who have been avoiding the topic, what would you say are the most important things that, that they could gain from participating in, in a conversation in a death over dinner? Well, it's a long list. So let's see, we'll hit some of the top ones. One is human connection. Do you value the depth of the connection to your community, um, to those that are closest to you? We actually know that our longevity is directly connected to how deep our connection is to our friends and family and loved ones. So having a death dinner or doing this work and thinking about the end of your life, how you want to be remembered, is actually the most impactful way of deepening your connection. So you actually live longer by talking about death. So there's one way. If you like life and you want it to extend, the other is <clears throat> repression causes disease. We know this. Um, we know that, that it's directly linked. A repressive style, not talking about things, is directly linked to autoimmune disorders, cancers, and a variety of other disorders, essentially inflammation in the body, um, which makes sense. When you repress something, it gets inflamed. And we are not given many ways as a culture to work on the emotional repression among our loved ones. It's one thing to go to a therapist, but it's very important to do this work of sharing vulnerably among the fam our family and friends. And talking about end of life is actually a way to exercise that muscle. You're just talking about being sore from you know your exercise regime. Here is an absolute way to exercise a muscle that is the opposite of repression. And then you're gonna live longer, um, you're gonna live healthier, but I'd say the most important for me reason for me is spiritual, and I and doesn't matter if you believe in God or, or what what have you. I, when I say spiritual, I mean life's purpose. What am I doing here? What is your why? And there is nothing better in as far as coming to terms with our priorities, what we care about, what we want to accomplish, who we want around us, what we want to say, then thinking about our mortality, it's always been that medicine in all of the wisdom traditions and religious traditions and non-religious traditions to confront why we're here. And once we know why we're here, that's when consumerism starts to be turned down. We don't need to accumulate when we know the, our why. So talk about crazy town and talk about reducing our carbon footprint you're really the answer is talking about death. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, I really appreciate uh, the way you're, you're opening uh, people's minds uh, and mind too about how important it is to have that kind of a conversation. Uh, so thank you so much for your work. Michael Hebb is the author of Let's Talk About Death Over Dinner and the founder of deathoverdinner.org and eol.community. 
really, really important work. And I, I so enjoyed uh, meeting and talking with you. Thanks for joining us in Crazy Town. Absolutely. Pleasure to be here. That's our show. Thanks for joining us in Crazy Town. This is a program of Post Carbon Institute. Get more info at postcarbon.org. Today's sponsor is a fascinating tech startup that Crazy Town listeners are going to want to follow in the coming years, assuming we have many left. You see, most survivalist strategies rely on bunkers, guns, crappy stored food, and basically holding out longer than the rest of the sheeple. And just face it, cryogenics is just not an option when the grid goes down and you defrost uncontrollably in the middle of Armageddon. This is where tardigrade tech comes in as the best option possibly available if they can raise enough money from investors and solve all the technical and scientific challenges. Your body basically gets dehydrated and you go into a metabolic quiescence state that lasts indefinitely. Just add water, and you should wake back up, ideally once it's all over, and the earth is a peaceful garden of Eden again. Tardigrade Tech. Crazy town. Da, 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 da. Crazy town.